0: Welcome back everyone to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to be with you today. America loves its underdogs. In the world of sports, there have been many underdogs. I could think of a few. There was Eli Manning and his New York Giants defeating the Patriots in Super Bowl 42. The Pittsburgh Pirates beating the heavily favored New York Yankees in the 1960 World Series. Buster Douglas beating Mike Tyson in 1990, with Tyson favored at 42-1. to Then there was Joe Namath pulling an upset over the Colts in Super Bowl three, And the come-from-behind Mets winning the 69 World Series. And who can forget the miracle on ice in the 1980 Olympics, when a bunch of amateur college guys fought their way to the finals and took on the world's best hockey teams from Finland and Russia and won the gold for the U.S. In women's basketball, Mississippi State beating UConn in 2017, where UConn had got 111 games without a loss. And then just look at last year's Kentucky Derby, where a chestnut colt named Rich Strike at 80-1 to 1 odds became only the second horse to win a Kentucky Derby from the 20th post position since 1930. All the great comeback stories. And you can talk sea biscuit and all kinds of baseball, hockey, and NFL comebacks. But in my humble opinion, there was never a more incredible underdog story than boxer James J. Braddock beating the Livermore butcher boy Max Baer on June 13, 1935. If you have a heart, you can't help but love this story. Today we're heading back in history, along with ringside passes, to what many call the golden age of boxing, a time when the gloves they wore didn't do much to stop the punching power, and the refs were slower at calling the fight over when one of the fighters was in trouble. Newspapers were king back in those days, the 20s and 30s, and so was radio, and between those two, that was most of the news. There was a famous author in sports columns to New York at that time named Damon Runyon, and it was he who gave the name Cinderella Man to the New Jersey boxer named James J. Braddock. The name somehow fit. One year before he walked into the ring to fight Max Baer for the heavyweight championship of the world, Braddock was working part-time on the docks in northern New Jersey, right across the Hudson from New York City, and forced to accept welfare so he could feed his wife and three children. His meteoric rise to the point where he could climb into the same ring with Max Bear had a fairy tale like quality, and so Damon Runyon's nickname stuck. There was nothing fairy tale like about the way James J. Braddock fought, however. He was an extremely hard man to take down and keep down, and he never gave up on himself, his wife, or his kids, which is what drove him. What he went through to make it to Madison Square Garden is a story that will inspire you and hopefully help you to realize that no matter how far down you think you are, there is always a way up if you believe in yourself. And it helps to have a few believers in your corner as well. Braddock had his manager, his wife, and his kids. They hung with him through thick and thin, and it got pretty thin. The James J. Braddock-Max Bear fight is considered by many to be the greatest upset in boxing history. And there's an incredible and inspiring story behind it as well. You might have seen the movie Cinderella Man in 2005. That was all about James J. Braddock. The movie was a huge hit, produced by Ron Howard and starring Russell Crowe and Renee Zellweger. I saw the movie, and I had to put it in my top ten all-time favorites. This is first and foremost the rags-to-riches story of James J. Braddock. I could also call this a tale of two boxers, because that's what you're going to get here. The incredible story of two completely different men, men whose life and fortunes were completely opposite and who would make history when they finally met and fought. In this story, you'll get the whole story top to bottom. When the stock market crashed in 1929, a lot of people's lives crashed with it. Just before that crash, James J. Braddock had it all. He was one of the best young fighters in the world, and rising fast. He had a wonderful wife named May, money in the bank, and what looked like a promising career in a sport that paid its top celebrities extremely well. At that time, a good fighter like a Jack Dempsey or a Max Baer was making more in a year than Babe Ruth would make in five years. When Max Baer fought Joe Louis, he made $215,000 for one fight five times that of Lou Gehrig's annual salary. There were 100,000 people packed into Yankee Stadium to watch that fight, while the Yankees were drawing 9,000 fans on their best night. Little boys wanted to be boxers when they grew up. The movie houses' most popular films featured leading actors who either played boxers or actually were boxers. So you can see why they call it the Golden Age of Boxing. Much of boxing's appeal was due to its ethnic and racial rivalries, which the promoters and writers pumped up with vigor. Back then it wasn't considered racist to be proud of your origins. It was the Irish versus the Jews, the Jews versus the Italians, the blacks versus the Poles. Fighters without clear origin names even changed their names to names like O'Brien or Goldstein to hype the match up, which would fatten the purse and their share of the purse, win or lose. The top position in sports in the 20s and 30s was the heavyweight champion. On September 22, 1927, Gene Tunney made $990,445 for a 30-minute fight against Jack Dempsey. Most people put the golden age of boxing from about 1920 to 1940. Jack Dempsey, who was the heavyweight champ from 1919 to 1926, once said, I was a pretty good fighter but the writers made me great. This was the golden age for sports writing. Names like Grantland Rice, Red Smith, Sheryl Povich, W.C. Hines, and Damon Runyon all deserve a nod. And it was Damon Runyon, the combination sports writer and short story author, whose New York City characters inspired the stage play Guys and Dolls, who gave Braddock his nickname Cinderella Man. In New York City alone, there were more than two dozen dailies daily papers, all with boxing and racing sections. When the depression hit, life changed. One year can make all the difference, as it did to Braddock. After fighting for the light heavyweight championship in 1929, James J. Braddock ran into a string of bad luck. He met defeat after defeat, first in big arenas, and then, as his name started to fade from the heights it once had known, in smaller fights, against boxers who were only a couple of notches above club fighter level. His fall exactly followed that of the American economy. And then in September of 1933, he broke his right hand on the head of a 20-year-old basically unknown fighter. Braddock could punch, and he could take a punch, but his footwork was sadly lacking. He couldn't afford a doctor for his hand, and he couldn't fight with it. His money ran out, and he needed work. He had kids now, and he could barely scrape up enough to pay the rent and keep the power on in their apartment. He made plenty of money in the 20s, but the Depression and the economic collapse within it caused many banks to fail, and his was the Bank of the United States, which failed, and all his money disappeared overnight. From his apartment in Woodcliffe, across the Hudson River from New York City in northern New Jersey, he walked three miles every day to the docks of Hoboken or Weehawken, looking for longshoremen work, which paid $4 a day, if you could get it. He showed up every day for work, and some days there was work, and some days there was none. He wasn't alone on those docks. Men who had been successful stockbrokers, bankers, former business owners, and lawyers were competing against blue-collar workers, immigrants fresh off the boat, and longshoremen union workers for work. James Braddock never stopped training. He felt jinxed by everything that had happened to him, but he never got down on himself or on his abilities. He worked out on the job, which required heavy lifting. He worked out in the gym. His right hand by 1934 was coming back. His manager, Joe Gould, had been wiped out as well, or close to it. Gould still kept up appearances, his job was to sell Braddock and get him some fights. And he pitched Braddock to every manager in the business. Gould continued long after most promoters had decided Braddock, whose broken right hand didn't stay a secret forever, was washed up. He told them Braddock was only 28. He still had it. And yes, it was Braddock who had broken the great Pete Blazos' jaw in four places. It was Braddock who had knocked out Tuffy Griffiths and turned Jimmy Slattery into Hamburger. Gould just didn't have any quit in him, and he never, ever gave up on Jimmy Braddock. In 1934, Braddock got his first break with a fight against John Corn Griffin. Griffin had spent the early years of the Depression employed with the U.S. Army, where he became known as a good fighter. So good, in fact, that he caught the eye of a veteran manager named Charles Harvey. In the spring of 34, griffin arrived at pompton lakes new jersey to join the training camp of boxer primo carnera who was a giant at six foot seven and weighing in at 270 pounds carnera was an italian he had a huge number of supportive fans paul gallico described him this way in farewell sport he wrote primo carnera was the only giant i've ever seen who was well proportioned throughout his body for his height his legs were massive and he was truly thud like an oak. For you youngsters, by the way, thud means muscled. We run into that word often in the Tarzan novels we're doing at 1001 stories for the road, which, by the way, if you haven't caught yet, you might want to think about. It's a lot of great action. Carnera's waist was comparatively small and clean, but from it rose a torso like a Spanish hog's head from which sprouted two tremendous arms, the biceps of which stood out like grapefruit. His hands were like Virginia hams, and his fingers were ten red sausages. His head was large, and he had a good nose and fine, kind eyes. His skin was brown and glistening, and he invariably smelled like garlic. One of the boxers who was brought into Carnera's training camp to spar with him was Corn Griffin, who went one round with the giant Cornera and promptly piled up Carnera in one corner, beating him savagely with both hands before driving him out. Which earned Griffin an undercard meaning a less promoted fight at Madison Square Garden before the big fight, which was the heavily anticipated Carnera versus Max Baer fight. The plan was to get some washed-up fighter in the ring with Corn Griffin so he could, quote, kick his brains out. But no one wanted to be the lamb offered up to Griffin, except one person, James J. Braddock. Braddock's manager, Joe Gould, got Jimmy Johnston, the Madison Square Garden man responsible for securing an opponent for Griffin, to agree to letting Braddock fight him. Johnson's reply to Gould Joe, Corn'll kill him. Ask any one of these guys. They've seen corn in there with Carnera. I don't want Jimmy's blood on my hands. The purse is two hundred and fifty bucks, and the fight's Thursday night. Gould went to Braddock and said, You've got a fight. You win, it pays two hundred fifty. You got two days to train. Braddock said yes. He was twenty-nine then, and fit. Dock work had kept him in shape. He split the one-hundred-dollar advance with Gould, and handed the money over to his wife, May, who paid the milkman, the utility man, and the landlord for another month. He then went to Stillman's gym for a few hours of workout. Gould met him there. He later admitted he'd never seen a more fit James Braddock. He was firing off left hands with stunning profusion and unexpected force. He was moving right and left and standing on his toes. No more flat-footed delivery as in old days. Trainer Doc Robb could only shake his head in amazement. Gould realized that all his rants about Braddock's abilities were finally come true. He had a chance. The gates opened at 5 p.m. at the Madison Square Garden Bowl on the corner of 45th Street and Northern Boulevard in Queens. All the legendary fighters such as Gene Tunney and Jack Sharkey were there along with all kinds of celebrities who could afford the tickets, which ranged from $25 ringside to 250 dollars in the nosebleed section. After a few lackluster four- and five-round fights, Braddock and Griffin stepped into the ring, Braddock wearing old trunks and borrowed shoes. Doc Robb told Braddock, Stay away from his right hand. He can punch. At the bell, Griffin, within seconds, had landed a hard one on Braddock's jaw, which left him stunned. In the second round, Griffin hit him again, and Braddock went down. Now the 10,000 fans were wide awake and watching. Braddock waited for a nine count, rose up, and waded into corn Griffin. He threw a jab that missed, but followed up with a short right to the chin that hit hard. Griffin hadn't even seen it, and he went down in a heap. Finally, Griffin got up, but he never fully recovered from that hit. Braddock started connecting in the remainder of the second with jabs, uppercuts, overhand rights, and Griffin was dazed. At the beginning of the third round, Braddock waded into Griffin again and jolted him with two powerful rights. Gould could be seen and heard in Braddock's corner screaming and jumping up and down wildly. Griffin was dazed while Braddock moved around him throwing punches, each one making an impact, until, with 23 seconds left in round three, the referee called the fight. Later in the dressing room, after receiving congratulations from friends and relatives, as well as Corn Griffin's manager, Braddock, holding a beer, turned to Gould and said, I did that on hash, Joe. Where did you see what I could do on steak? Meaning with some halfway decent food to strengthen him, Braddock felt confident he could beat anybody. For me and our Jack London listeners who heard the tale, A Piece of Steak at 1001 Classy Short Stories, and now at 1001 Best of Jack London, that carries extra meaning. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages And now, back to our story. James Braddock was born at 511 West 48th Street in New York City. And if you search that, you'll find the words Hell's Kitchen right on top of that address. I checked, and the last name to live there is that of Jose Ortega. From what I can tell, the rent for a two-bedroom in that building is $3,000 a month. When he was a few years old, his father moved him to West New York, which is actually a town across the Hudson River in northern New Jersey actually just a few hundred yards from West 47th. And it was there in West New York where he attended St. Joseph's Parochial School. It was on the playground there that James learned to fight, and of the 30 or so boys in his age group, all of them could fight. That was just the way of life there. He learned how to fight better than most of them. In that atmosphere, fighting skills wasn't the main factor to winning. It was gameness. He learned how to take punches and give back better than he got. West New York was not too far from the docks in North Bergen, New Jersey, where the family made their third move. I doubt if Jose Ortega or anyone who has rented there at 511 West 47th Street or the apartment in West New York or Bergen knows or cares that one of boxing's legends lived there. By the time James was 14, the nuns closed the school doors to him for fighting too often, and he left the family, headed for Chicago for a few years to make it on his own. His brother Joe, three years James a senior, did become a pro boxer, and when James returned to North Bergen and home, he and his brother got in a fight that lasted for hours, with the younger James holding his own. They fought outside, and the fight covered a couple of neighborhoods, and it was barefisted, The two of them, but especially the younger James, became legends in North Bergen for that fight, which was witnessed by hundreds over a period of hours. It was that fight that convinced James that he could fight and he could take a punch. James got into boxing and rose rapidly through the amateur ranks, then turned pro, and by 1929 he was a top earner as a pro boxer, with money in the bank, a wife, a house, and a family. The Depression hit, and as we mentioned at the top, he lost everything when his bank failed, beginning to run a bad luck for him that left him a broken-down has-been, and he and his family scratching out a life in the ghetto. His was the hard luck story that everyone knew and talked about because boxers and baseball players were the heroes of sports in the 1920s and boxers were the top earners by far. Most followed their rising stars, banking their winnings, so that even when they got beaten or old, they had enough savings to still enjoy the life of celebrities. But Braddock had nothing. All his money was lost when his bank failed. The saddest thing for Braddock was that so many men knew him and recognized him, as a has-been who was struggling to live. While Braddock was struggling every morning to make the pick at the docks, where they picked maybe a dozen men to work that day, while the other two hundred went home, Max Bayer, the man that Braddock would be facing in the most important fight of his life within a few short years, was on the rise to become the heavyweight champion of the world. At six foot two, With what one writer described as the waist of a bride and shoulders as wide as a doorframe, Max Bayer was built to box. He wasn't the sharpest knife in the collection, but he instinctively knew how to fight. He was also a clown. He had women, money, and fame. Everything to him was funny. Nearly 20 years after Bayer's death, Sports Illustrated writer Ron Fimwright wrote, Above all else, he was a lover, not a fighter. That such a man should have become a heavyweight champion of the world and a principal in some of the ring's bloodiest conflicts, including one, and purportedly two, that brought about the death of an opponent, is one of the most remarkable paradoxes in the history of sport. Max Baer was born in Omaha and later moved to Colorado, where his father, Jacob, worked for Swift, a meatpacking plant. In 1922, when Max was 13, his family moved to Northern California where his father purchased the Twin Oaks Ranch in Livermore, 45 miles east of San Francisco. Max stayed busy on the ranch, which was where he developed his strength, which would serve him well in the ring. Unlike Braddock, Max didn't grow up throwing punches, until one day when he and a few teenage friends were caught with some beer they had stolen from a local lumberjack. The big man cornered Max and threw a hard punch, hitting Max squarely in the jaw. It was a well-thrown shot, but Max barely blinked. Then he returned the punch to the lumberjack's jaw, and the big man fell unconscious to the floor. The crowd in the room stared at Max until someone said, That was a hell of a punch. Max rubbed his knuckles and answered, Just lucky, I guess. Max was a huge fan of Jack Dempsey, but he had entertained no dreams of boxing himself until a local man in Livermore offered to back him and by the time he was 18, he had set up a makeshift gym in his basement, and his backer was looking for amateur fights for him. It did not take Bear long to discover he had a killer punch, and he was fearless in the ring. The wild man from Livermore started to get a reputation, and by 1929, in his ninth fight, he earned $4,000, a lot of money for those days. And wouldn't you know, it was right at the time that Braddock's bank failed him, and he began his downhill slide. Max Bear was on his way up. As the world entered the Depression, Bear was having the time of his life. Beautiful women, money, a 16-cylinder limo driven by a chauffeur and complete with a footman, and dressed in tweeds, riding pants, and boots, Bear made a splash wherever he went. Meanwhile, Braddock was begging for work and finally made to suffer the ignominy of having to go on welfare. In 1930, Bayer fought Frankie Campbell and beat him so badly that Campbell died a few hours later. A warrant was issued for manslaughter charges, but neither Campbell's mother nor his wife would sign the charges, Bayer having apologized to her as Campbell lay dying, and their attitudes being, he knew what he was getting into. Most of the fans and people involved placed the blame for Campbell's death on the ref who should have stopped the fight. He was on the opposite side of the ring when he should have been standing over Campbell. The Hearst newspaper headlines added the name Butcher to Max Bear, and that was how he earned the nickname The Butcher of Livermore. Max Bear, for all his mean reputation, was heartsick over the death of Campbell. His license was suspended for four months. Meanwhile, the Hearst newspaper syndicate launched a campaign against the brutality of boxing and made Max Bear their number one target. For the rest of his life, Max Baer had nightmares about the events of August 25, 1930. Later in his career, he refused to press his advantage over dazed opponents. He would almost always give them a fair chance. Although he didn't love fighting, he was too good to quit, and so he kept fighting all the way to the top. His first really big win was his fight with Max Schmelling at Yankee Stadium. Schmelling had been the heavyweight champion up until recently, when he was beaten by Jack Sharkey on a controversial decision that the public and sportswriters believed was wrong. They all felt that Schmeling had won it clearly. Schmeling wanted the title back, and the best path was to beat up on some rising contenders to get in shape for the big one. Max Baer was one of those rising contenders. Baer was one-quarter Jewish, and Schmeling was a product of Hitler's Germany, so that element was hyped by the press and Bear helped it along by wearing a Star of David on his trunks. In front of a crowd of sixty thousand, Bear entered the ring with a fighting attitude, and carried the round until Schmeling landed a right that made Bear's head swim. When he went to the corner he told his acting second, none other than Jack Dempsey, I see three of him." to which Dempsey famously replied, Hit the one in the middle. After the second round, Bear seemed to have lost interest in fighting. "'but Schmeling couldn't take him down. "'Finally in the ninth round, one of his coaches told him, "'Max, you're losing. Now go out there and end this.' "'To which Bear said, "'No problem,' through his mouthpiece. "'He was getting fed up with himself as well. "'He went out and destroyed Schmelling "'with a devastating right hand to Schmelling's jaw. "'Schmeling got up at the nine count, but was stumbling. "'And soon after, Arthur Donovan called the fight.' Baird won a big one against the man that most people believed at the time to be the real heavyweight champ, Max Schmeling. But Max Baird turned that upside down. It was after that that Max Baer went Hollywood. The star of David didn't hurt his getting noticed there. Louis B. Meyer had met him before, and now signed into two movies. And the movie industry and the public soon discovered Baer could act, and well. Baer took naturally to acting. He liked it a whole lot more than boxing, and there were girls everywhere. The giant, Primo Carnero, was one of the boxers signed to co-star in the movie The Prize Fighter and the Lady, along with Jack Dempsey and others. And on the set, Max Baer, the good-looking one, always armed with a joke or way to charm the ladies, made constant fun of the uncomfortable giant, Carnero, making him wish he had never signed up for that movie. Baer was brutal. Maybe because it pleased him to be able to mock a known tough guy. And maybe because he knew he was signed to fight Carnera later next year, which was 1934. As that winter of thirty-three, thirty-four passed, James J. Braddock was sitting in a cold, broken-down apartment building, nursing a broken hand in a cast, which made it impossible for him to work or fight. He had broken it in a fight against a boxer named Feldman. He didn't quit when it broke he kept on fighting. That was just his nature. When his hand healed to the point he could work, he would make an early morning walk in the darkness to the docks and descend down the hill to the place where the railroad tracks nearly met the docks at Weehawken and Hoboken and ask if there was any work. On the days when there was work, he would spend the day unloading railroad ties from the ships that carried them up from southern manufacturers. The men he worked with, hardened stevedores for the most part, Knew he had been a championship fighter and often asked him for stories. The work was hard and non-union guys were resented there but Braddock did his work well and didn't get involved in squabbles. He still had a bum right and he had to do all his lifting with his left. He never looked for an easy way out. He always did his share. He would return home long after dark and climb into bed beside May back at 69th Street exhausted. On days when he couldn't find work he would offer to clean basements, shovel snow, or sweep floors. Sometimes he would work as a bartender. Most of the men in the bar there knew who he was the former contender for the light heavyweight title, James J. Braddock, now serving beers. It must have been a humbling experience. As the winter of 34 slowly passed, his family was down to potato hash and potato stew. The milk and electric bills were overdue, and for several months, They couldn't pay the rent. The temperatures in North Jersey dipped to ten below that year, just another day in a record-setting cold winter in the Northeast. With one dime left in his pocket, he walked to the ferry, paid the four-cent fare to Manhattan, and then walked a mile to Madison Square Garden to find Joe Gould and begged Joe for $35 to pay his bills, which would put the heat back on in his apartment. Gould said, wait a minute, and left Braddock standing for about thirty minutes, while he went to ask fighter ranger at Madison Square Garden, Jimmy Johnson, for a loan for $35, because Gould had nothing. A few days later, Braddock was out of money again, and had to take what for him was the path of shame. He went to the county office and applied for welfare, which would provide him with $24 a month. Another contrast to the lives of Braddock and Max Baer at that time. Max Baer had set up a training camp at Asbury, New Jersey in preparation for his upcoming fight with the giant, Primo Carnera. Carnera was five inches taller and fifty pounds heavier than Bear, and Bear had spent most of his training camp time jockeying for the attention of the press and partying. He even invited the press to a one-round wrestling match with his younger brother, Buddy, who weighed 244 pounds. At one point, Bear picked Buddy up seemingly without effort, swung him over his head, and spun him around and then put him down carefully, without even breathing hard. Bear was seen to go easy on his sparring partners, drawing criticism from the sports writers who said he was losing his viciousness, prompting Bear's response, "'Listen, I'm not a gym fighter. I don't want to hurt my sparring partners. I'll do my fighting in the ring when I beat Carnera, who, by the way, is now the heavyweight champion.' On the night before the fight, Bear had come to his senses, staying at the Park Central." and obeyed his manager's curfew, spending a quiet evening in his room with friends and family. The fight started at the Madison Square Garden Bowl with Bear stalking Carnera, looking for an opportunity, before landing a hard, unexpected punch to Carnera's stomach and following up with a vicious right to Carnera's jaw, dropping the giant as the crowd went wild. Carnera, angered, leaped to his feet without waiting the few seconds to gather himself, and Bear, knowing he had heard him, "'began chasing Carnera from corner to corner. "'Bear knocked down Carnera three times in the first round, "'twice in the second, and another in the third. "'Meanwhile, Bear kidded with his pals in the corner "'and mugged for the crowd. "'Carnera charged once at him like a bull, "'and Bear waved him aside like a matador, "'making Carnera look like a fool. "'Bear then took it easy on him for a few rounds. "'At one point, Bear's friend Harry Smith and the crowd "'suffered a heart attack and as medics were carrying him out, Bear shouted, Don't worry about me. Take care of Harry. Carnera actually won the 4th, 7th, 8th, and ninth rounds, but only because Bear was waiting for an opening. He found that opening in the 10th, knocking down Carnera three times. Carnera was tough, but finally Bear knocked him down one too many times, and referee Arthur Donovan stopped the fight. Bear had won the World Heavyweight Championship. As we mentioned earlier on, in 1934, Braddock finally got a fight, this one against Corn Griffin, which he won with a knockout. Braddock's right hand had healed. His left hand, strengthened by months of one-handed work at the docks, was just as powerful as his right. But even with a knockout against Corn Griffin, Braddock only received indifference from the press. His share of the purse was just $125, and that disappeared as soon as he received it. Although his manager and loyal friend Joe Gould was trying to get him fights, they weren't coming. Braddock returned to work on the docks and was training hard now as well. On November 16th at Madison Square Garden, Braddock went up against John Henry Lewis, who had beaten Braddock back in 1932. Braddock knocked out Lewis this time with his left in the 10th round. Braddock then took May out for steak dinner for the first time in years. The next morning, Braddock walked to the municipal building in North Bergen and found Jimmy Kelly there. Kelly had signed the request for welfare just months before. "'That was a big win, Jimmy,' said Kelly. "'Yeah, it was, thanks. "'I want you to take my name off the rolls.' "'Are you sure?' said Kelly. "'You might still qualify.' "'I'm sure,' Braddock said, and with a smile on his face, he walked out. Braddock knew his life was changing.' and he was on the rise. Just one month after that, in mid-December, 1934, Max Baer was basking in the fame of the heavyweight championship. He was 25 years old. The sports writers were expecting him to reign for at least a decade. Baer didn't see any contenders on the list that looked good to him. Most were grudge matches with guys he had already beaten. He floated a great idea. He wanted to fight his two top contenders in one fight. Nobody could beat him. He was in prime shape. He was a heavyweight champion and a movie star. He was on cloud nine. Meanwhile, Braddock's manager, Joe Gould, was telling everyone who would listen to him that Braddock was one fight away from knocking the stuffing out of Max Bear. Jimmy Johnston was the matchmaker at Madison Square Garden, and Gould knew that Johnston was putting together an elimination tournament to determine who would fight Bear in his first title defense. So Gould started working on Johnston. Finally, opportunity presented itself to Braddock with a chance to fight a top contender named Lasky. Beating Lasky provided a direct path to bear. The fight took place March 22, 1935. Lasky came right after Braddock in the first round. Braddock had been coached to watch Lasky's chin because Lasky would stick it out when he was considering certain punches. The tell was all Braddock needed and he hit it cleanly right there in the first round and Lasky was stunned. In round after round, Braddock used his powerful left jab and devastating right to outfight the tough Lasky, winning a unanimous decision after 15 rounds. That Monday morning, Braddock walked to Madison Square Garden to collect his $4,000 from Johnston and was invited into Johnston's office. The office was crowded with writers, including Frank Graham, who said to Jimmy, We haven't had a fight around here for a long time that stirred people up like this one did. I met some hard-boiled guys after the fight that told me they were praying for you. Did you know that? Braddock smiled and answered. The priest over in my parish told me that after Mass on Saturday morning, he met a lady coming out of the church, and she said to him, I was listening to Jimmy Braddock's fight on the radio last night, and all the time I was listening to it and praying. And the priest said, Now what do you think I was doing? Later Braddock cashed the check and went back to North Bergen. "'entered the municipal building, "'found his pal Jimmy Kelly, "'and handed him an envelope. "'This is for you,' he said. "'What do you got there?' said Kelly. "'Just what I owe you,' said Braddock. "'What do you mean? "'You don't owe me anything,' said Kelly, "'opening the envelope, in which was $300. "'That's the relief money. "'I'm paying it back,' said Jimmy. "'Jimmy, you know that's not necessary.' It is to me, Braddock said, but Kelly wouldn't take the money. Keep it, he said. You can pay it when you win the title. Braddock wrote out an IOU, payable July 1st. On March 26th, the State Athletic Commission named Braddock the mandatory challenger for Max Baer's heavyweight title. The fight was set for June 13th, 1935, and Braddock headed for training camp at a remote location in the Catskills, north of New York City, while Bear turned Asbury Park into a carnival setting the same as he had done just a few years before. We'll return right after this sponsor message. And now, back to our story. Bear's training camp in Asbury Park was very similar to the one he'd had a year previous, except for one noticeable difference. Well, maybe two. First and most notable was the absence of Mike Cantwell, Bear's longtime trainer, who had split recently from Bear because of differences over Bear's antics and laziness when it came to proper training. Cantwell was so angry with Bear that he joined Braddock's camp, giving Braddock valuable information as to Bear's weaknesses, the foremost of which was Bear's midsection. Braddock's punching power being what it was, said Cantwell, could do serious damage to Bear's midsection. The second noticeable difference was Bear's quietly setting up a defense in case he lost, which was an odd thing for a huge favorite to do. There was some self-doubt creeping in, apparently. Who knows? Maybe it was that he figured he would beat up Braddock so badly that he might kill him, and knowing Braddock had a wife and kids, Bear would leave them fatherless. So, he might have thought, he might back off just a little to give Braddock a fighting chance, and that backing off, good as it was for his conscience, might cost him the crown he was getting tired of fighting anyway and wanted to pursue the celebrity's life without getting beaten up twice a year by hungry contenders only a theory but who knows having caused one known death in the ring and a second suspected death the guilt factor was always there with Bear but while sharing theories I don't want to take away from how Bear or Braddock fought the fight as you will soon see the killer instinct was alive in both of them on June 13th. Would you like to have been a sparring partner with James Braddock in those last few weeks? His manager Gould ordered a very tough training regime and put together a murderer's row of sparring partners. There was Paul Prost, a 210-pound German, Norman Barnett, who had been a fullback at the University of Maryland, Jack McCarthy, a rugged former sparring partner of Jack Sharkey's, and the lightning quick Don Petron, who had lost his job sparring with Max Schmeling when he made the champion look bad. Gould ordered them to give it everything they had and changed them out at three-minute intervals. When Braddock wasn't sparring, he was running, jumping rope, and shadow boxing. Jack Dempsey, and by the way, we did a story on Jack Dempsey you can find at 1001 Heroes by searching his name, visited the training camp and left saying Bear better not take him lightly. He said... He's training for 40 rounds. May was with Braddock through the entire training, and at night May, James, Joe Gould, trainer Rob, and the hotel proprietors and owner would join in games of hearts, Braddock's favorite game. As the sports writers increased coverage in the days before the fight, it was becoming obvious that Braddock was the home favorite. The news of his having to take welfare had already run its course months ago, and although it was embarrassing to Braddock, the fact that he had offered to pay the county back and that his was a rags-to-riches story endeared him to most of the populace. Besides, Bear was a rich West Coast guy, not a heavy favorite in the Northeast. On the evening of June thirteenth, nineteen 1935, 30,000 fans and 1,000 policemen crowded into the Madison Square Garden Bowl. Although millions of people were listening to the radio coverage, few of Braddock's fans really believed he had a chance against Bear. There was no dome on the bowl, as domes strong enough to cover sports venues weren't in existence then, and people were lined up on the rooftops surrounding the event overlooking the bowl. The fight was scheduled to start at 10 o'clock p.m., and Braddock, showing no signs of nervousness, took a nap a few hours before. Out in the arena, Gould was laying down all the money he could beg or borrow on Braddock at 8 to 1 odds against. Gould managed to scrape together $25,000 Jimmy's father, Joseph Sr., was there, and that was the first of his son's fights he would ever witness. All of Jimmy's brothers were there, too. May didn't have the will to watch it. She was with her three kids at her mother's home in Gutenberg, surrounded by reporters who couldn't get assigned to the fight. When Braddock woke from his nap, Rob wrapped his hands and laced up his gloves with fight officers watching. The writers at ringside were joking and laying bets. All the big writers were there, Damon Runyon, who was soon to give Braddock the Cinderella Man moniker—Rice, Parker, Graham, Dawson, Shabazian, and others. They were about to watch the longest long shot in heavyweight championship history. They knew all about Bear, and they'd all written the life story of James J. Braddock, minus this one final chapter. Just after 10 p.m., Bear, Braddock, and all their seconds gathered in the center of the ring to listen to referee Johnny McAvoy's instructions. Bear and Braddock were both sweating under their robes and hoods. They had warmed up just before entering the ring. Bear was grinning, while a sneer was visible at the corner of Braddock's mouth as their eyes met. They touched gloves, then turned around and walked back to their corners. I'm going to give you a round-by-round description while backing up each round with a radio announcer's account until we get to round twelve, and then it'll be the announcer. There have been a lot of great moments in boxing history. But this is one of the most incredible comebacks in sports history. The bell to bring in round one rang, and Braddock headed straight for Max Bear, hitting him with a powerful left to the jaw, and then a right to the body. Bear grinned, then aimed an uppercut at Braddock's chin and missed. Bear then landed a left on Braddock's ribs, which Braddock answered with a powerful right to Bear's jaw. Braddock's punches surprised Bear; they were crisper and sharper than Bear's, and Bear realized for the first time that he might be in trouble. This throws aside the theory that Bear might go soft on Braddock, because Bear knew he was fighting for his life from round one. Round one went to Bear. The main bout. Fifteen rounds for the heavyweight championship of the world.
1: Introducing the world's heavyweight champion, from Livermore, California, Max Baer. His opponent, the man who in the last year made the greatest comeback in ring history, James J. Braddock of Jersey City.
0: the one hands, come out fight and
1: so final instructions from referee Johnny McAvoy as the fighters go back to their corners this first defense for Max Bear, James Braddock as the ring announcer was saying A comeback man and he lands the first purposeful punch of the fight max bear who's developed something of a playboy image over the last year really is a very very strong favorite indeed for this contest the feeling is that the champion has the power and he certainly has the poise maybe though he's just underestimated this man james braddock a big crowd turned out at the Long Island Bowl Braddock on the left hand side of your picture, slightly the taller man, the lighter man as well weighed in at 13 stone 11 and three quarters, Max Bear, 14 stone 13 and a half oh good right hand from Braddock, Bear poses postures as much as to say it didn't hurt but that was a good solid clubbing right hand from the challenger Braddock incidentally with a slight height and reach advantage Braddock a local man born in the Hell's Kitchen area of New York now based out of New Jersey Quite opening to the fight, and it has to be said that Bear hasn't done too much so far. Faints to throw the left to the head and follows up with a left hook to the body, and in the end comes off for the worst for it. Braddock just patiently going about his work. And the end of an opening round, few boos amid the cheers, and for my money, Braddock does enough to win it.
0: In round two, Braddock again struck first with a long left to Bear's head. Again, Bear smiled. His way of signaling that Bear's punches didn't hurt and he returned that with a hard body shot, thinking it would move Braddock back. But instead, Braddock landed three straight rights to Bear's head. At this level, you might have the speed to get in two rights, but three? Bear was throwing punches like lightning. Now Bear had to try to stay away from Braddock's right hand. He pretended to charge at Braddock, but Braddock didn't give an inch. Bear landed a cruel right hook on Braddock's jaw, one that would have floored most fighters. Braddock would later say that the shock of that punch went all the way down to the big toe of his right foot, and if there'd been a 1,000-watt bulb connected to that toe, it would have lit up. But before Bear could follow up, round two had ended. Another round for Braddock.
1: Round two, of course, scheduled to go 15 rounds, the championship distance. Max Bear... With the star of David on the far side of the ring the left side of your picture now in his 48th professional fight 40 wins as against seven defeats solid shot again from Braddock no respecter of reputation body shots from bear Who incidentally said uh, when they made it, they just signed the poor guy's death warrant. No sign of that so far as Braddock again comes on strong. Braddock coached and taught in the sport by Joe Jeanette, one of the leading heavyweights of the early years of the century. Professional for around about ten years. You can see he's a well-schooled fighter. Originally a light heavyweight, stepped up and... uh, Had a couple of bad defeats at the beginning of the 1930s, looked as though he was uh, going absolutely nowhere, but three good wins in the last year, and you can see him once again, the confidence, as he's putting together his punch as well in this second round. There's a lethargic look to Bear's work at this stage, obviously feels he has the knockout punch, Contemptuously hitches up his shorts at the end of the second, but it's another round to Braddock Come on Max is the cry from the crowd Bear's done plenty of posturing and clowning not thrown too many meaningful punches so far the champion on the far side of the ring Max Bear, born in Nebraska but brought up in Livermore, California. Stalking Braddock, looking to unleash those bombs. And Braddock at the moment, the only man doing any meaningful scoring. They're very much the self-styled glamour boy. Been performing in nightclub reviews over the last year. with body shots from Bear. Again that jab, a scoring shot from Braddock Now the fighter troubled by the power of the opponent so far Braddock just doing a bit more work Picking Bear off with the jab and the right over the top and that gets a roar of acclaim from the crowd Bear looking very sluggish as he moves into range. And again, a pretty poor round from the champion.
0: Between rounds two and three, Gould was jabbering wildly in the corner while Braddock was relaxing. Gould's nervousness seemed to have the opposite effect on Braddock, who was sitting calmly. Bear's corner was tense. His trainer Hoffman said, Max, listen to me. This is no joke. You've got to start fighting. Bear responded, ''You see that punch I hit him with? He didn't move. He's a tough guy.'' ''Well, just hit him with another one and he'll go down,'' responded Hoffman. Bear looked out at the crowd. ''Is that Myrna Loy?'' ''Knock it off, Max,'' said Hoffman. At the beginning of round three, Braddock piled two lefts into Bear's face to start the round. Despite what Braddock had shown against Lewis and Lasky, and Bear had listened to those fights and seen the footage, Bear was seemingly newly impressed with Braddock's left hand. The third round of a heavyweight match for the title is a little late to realize your opponent's hitting power, but that pretty well defines Max Bear at that moment. Bear responded with a low punch, which brought a scream of indignation from Gould and followed it up with a right hand to Braddock's exposed jaw. Braddock didn't budge. He didn't go down as Bear expected. Instead, Braddock shot a left hand to Bear's head, and then it became a punch fest, something Braddock had been trying to stay away from. The third round ended as a draw with the judges. In the fourth round, Bear started mugging to the crowd and even grabbed Braddock by the shoulders trying to wrestle him to the canvas. The crowd booed, and the ref issued Bear a caution. Bear then started throwing killer punches, hoping to end the fight now, the realization that if left unhurt, Braddock could go the full 15. Braddock started moving right to avoid Bear's right, most of the punches didn't land. Throwing those punches into thin air was tiring Bear, and that showed on his actions and on his face. He actually looked bored, but he wasn't bored. He was perplexed. He had never fought an opponent like this. Braddock was impervious to Bear's punches, and he was throwing sharp punches. He didn't seem to be tiring. The fourth round went to Braddock. In the fifth round, Braddock opened with a short left to Bear's head, and Bear countered with an illegal backhand right, for which he received another warning, which would cost him that round. At the beginning of the sixth round, Bear charged Braddock, but Braddock stopped him in his tracks with a left jab. But but Bear wouldn't be stopped. He was desperate. He got in close and landed two hard uppercuts. But while he did so, Braddock just kept punching like a wind-up toy. Braddock just kept punching, He landed an explosive right on Bear's jaw that buckled Bear's knees, and for a moment looked as though he might go down, but only for a moment.
1: There were boos from the crowd at the end of the fourth. They'd like to see a little bit more meaningful action. Bear, contemptuous about Braddock's abilities, is holding his left arm out more as a measuring stick than a jab. But he's not earning any sort of credit by just posturing. He's got to throw punches nothing at all from Bear, Max Bear only 26 by four years the younger man the fresher fighter you would have thought but at the moment he certainly doesn't look that way and he's moaning to the referee about some work from Braddock inside maybe a bit of work with the head from the challenger Braddock totally outboxing Max Bear Bear going flailing in trying to throw the big right hand Braddock slipping it well getting inside and not giving bear room to open up and then replying with interest Braddock certainly lightly regarded by the bear camp max bear had a hand injury in training Booze again at the end of the fifth round and Bear starts with a good solid left to the solar plexus Oh, good work from Braddock though, and at last the crowd get a little bit of toe-to-toe action to cheer on All right. Max Baer, the champion, must surely know now that he's behind on the card Snappy jab from Braddock there just pause with his left hand then tries to throw the clubbing right hand and braddock sees it coming a mile off the body shot from braddock you could hear that right hand thud home into the rib cage good right hand again they're not stunned by it taunting Braddock as he comes forward but another round I think to the challenger hoots of derision again at the end of the 6th now into the 7th Bear hasn't really been able to unleash the power shots so far. The punches which put down the feared Primo Carnera. Body shot from Bear. Braddock wanted a little bit of help from the referee in there. And solid right hand from the champion. Oh, that's a good right, good short right hand and Braddock's in trouble, he was wobbled by that it was the short right hand which did the damage, and now can Max Baer finish him off? Baer's going, looking to end this Braddock trying to buy time, trying to get in close and has Max Baer missed his opportunity? james braddock still looking a bit unsteady but a good right hand from the challenger well bear now knows he can hurt his man and it wasn't one of those big long telegraphed right hands which did the damage it was a sweet right hand which traveled no more than 18 inches well braddock's rode out the storm max bear taps him on the shoulder by way of acknowledgement and let's take another look at that right hand from Bear that was the one which did the damage and Bear you can see going looking for the finish Braddock in big trouble at this stage but the old pro 83 fights behind him managed to buy the time and to ride out the storm
0: in the 7th round Bear was fighting for his life he rushed Braddock flailing with lefts and rights, which, had any connected solidly, would have knocked out a lesser fighter. Bear connected with two of them and ended up winning the round. In his corner, Bear admitted to his trainer, I don't know if I can make it. I better finish him now. In the eighth, Bear landed two quick punches to Braddock's head, which had no visible effect, and Bear was feeling seriously frustrated. Braddock saw that, and he saw that Bear was tiring. "'but he resisted the urge to close and go punch for punch with Bear. "'He sensed he was well ahead with points, "'and he determined that he would wear Bear down. "'He hit Bear with a right, and again Bear's knees buckled "'while his eyes appeared to roll back in his head. "'The crowd rose, expecting Bear to fall to the mat, "'but Bear recovered and rushed at Braddock. "'Bear had been playing possum, acting like the punch had hurt him, "'hoping that Braddock would close on him so Bear could land a knockout punch.' But Braddock didn't take the bait. When Bear came close, Braddock whispered, "Is that all you got? I'm going to let the audio take you to the next rounds."
1: Round eight of this world heavyweight championship fights from New York. Well, oh, that's play acting from Bear, showing the crowd and Braddock that he wasn't hurt one jot. But more often than not, when fighters do that, it means they are hurt. And Bear may be clowning, but Braddock knew that he got through and he's done it again. You get the impression that Braddock, having rode that storm in round seven, might just now be gaining in confidence. And realising that against all the odds, this just might be his night. Again, nothing with that left hand from Bear. No more than an irritant to Braddock. A measuring stick, if you like, for Max Bear. But no good doing it if you don't follow up with a decent right hand. Maybe that training injury is stopping Bear stepping in. Braddock picking him off as he comes forward now. Good, crisp headshots. Bear flailing away, but starting to look tired. eighth round and there was the right hand from Braddock Bear clowning suggesting he wasn't hurt at all Well, it might amuse some people but I'm sure that James Braddock doesn't mind one bit into the ninth they're trying to draw Braddock in so he can land that big right hand Although we've not seen too much evidence of the Bear knockout punch for the last couple of rounds or so maybe that big effort in the seventh maybe a little bit of damage you can hear Bear's corner urging him forward come on Max but no real sign of world championship form from the champion so far Messy tangles no real meaningful shots being thrown inside, kind of use of the head from Braddock. See Braddock boring forward, and it's starting to get a little bit rough in close. Braddock staying right in Bear's face, not giving him any opportunity to launch the big right hook. Again just picking the champion off, then working away inside. Bell goes to end the round. Into the 10th. Now if James Braddock can just find the self-belief. Is he going to become the world champion at the age of 29? the Cinderella man, a real rags to riches story there finding the target but no great power in those shots just arm punches from the champion cuffing Braddock and then way off target with the right hand over the top there with that idiosyncratic movement of hitching up his shorts Bear simply is just not doing enough. Again the head of Braddock in close. Good right hand to the body from Bear. Bear on the far side of the ring. Another good solid body shot right on the bell. Bear just pushing towards Braddock with that open glove. Referee really should do something about that. the action starts to warm up Bear maybe has been told by his corner look Max, you've really got to do something about this and there's a greater purpose now to the champion's work Bear thinks to throw the right hand and again thinks twice about it to the belief that maybe he's carrying an injury left hook from Braddock Braddock goes boring in with the head smart right over the top from the challenger and again the clash of heads there's talking to Braddock in there Bell goes to end a closer round and Bear maybe did enough to take that one Solid right hand from Braddock. And again. And is the title slipping away from Max Bear? Measures his man with that left hand again, still doesn't throw the right. And he does to the body there, just more of an arm punch than anything else. And Braddock able to pick him off with combinations. Left hand again from Braddock, oh good shot from the challenger More of an air of desperation about uh, the work of Max Baer Baer talking to Braddock's corner but it's not enough, and Braddock, like a man, inspired big shots right on the bell Let's see again, there's plenty of bumping and boring with heads left hand from Braddock Bear coming back, trying to plant that right hand only a glancing blow, and Braddock comes back, replying with interest two or three solid shots to the head good body shot from Bear. fierce exchange there Bear again and again, hammering away at the body. But Braddock is fighting like a man inspired. Round 13, Bear must know now he needs three big rounds. But it's Braddock who again is forcing the pace. Bear the heavier man, more well-muscled man, but he's not been able to make his power tell so far. Cries of come on Jimmy boy now, urging on Braddock. Scoring shots again from Braddock. Left-right combination. They're still doing plenty of posing in there and unable to sustain the action for three-minute bursts. Really makes you wonder about his preparations for this contest. Braddock not doing anything too spectacular, but just doing enough. So two rounds to go. And Max Baer now surely needs to find a knockout to turn this round. Ponderous, lethargic performance from the champion in his first defence. Solid right hand from Bear, and again. Good, solid shots once again. And Bear may be realizing that the title slipping away from him is really going for broke. Trying to tee off the big right hand. Braddock only just off-target with that Bear allowing his gloves to hang low Some of the crowd away back thought that Bear was in trouble but it was only a glancing blow and Braddock content now to get inside and just try and mess the champion around Bear a little bit disconsolately goes back to his corner see again some of the action from that 14th round good right uppercut from bear there was the right hand over the top not a clean connection from braddock and no suggestion that bear was in trouble when bear tries to fight back braddock's in close tying him up so the 15th and final round braddock tying bear up inside the head coming in as well, referee keeping a close look at it and Bear complaining to the referee, and the referee says never mind that, get in there Johnny McAvoy, an experienced man between the ropes won't take any of Max Bear's nonsense a lot of headwork again though from Braddock Bear's got to find the big shot Braddock knows it, and that's why he's in close Trying to prevent the champion getting any sort of leverage on his danger punches. And Braddock just may be closing in on the title. Bear throwing the more punches, but there's a flailing desperation about it. Can Max Bear find the big shot? Oh, that's a good solid right hand. And another one. Oh, and he's staggered. Braddock is caught by two good lefts and a right cross. The first time since the seventh round. James Braddock's legs momentarily stiffened, but is it too late? Two very tired men just leaning on now. Oh, good right hand from Braddock. Bear takes it well. And Braddock, maybe, as the two embrace, maybe he's pulled off one of the great comeback stories of all time. Max Bear makes his way back to his corner disconsolately, and certainly the Braddock corner think that their man is the new champion of the world. Shortly we'll hear the deliberations of the judges from our master of ceremonies tonight and here now comes the verdict the winner and new heavyweight so the celebrations begin Braddock won it Max Baer failing in his first defense and James J Braddock from New Jersey aged 29 in his 84th professional fight is champion of the world
0: the fight was over the long shot, James J. Braddock, had won a decision by a large margin. In Gutenberg, May Braddock cried and hugged her mother when she heard, heard Frazier announce the winner. But she decided it would be best not to wake the children. After all, it was 11 o'clock, past their bedtime. Braddock later said that he had a tougher time getting back to the locker room than he had during the fight, with people pulling his hair and grabbing his elbows, all trying to get a piece of him. The writers were mostly all back there. "'and they were waiting for Braddock to speak first, "'as soon as he finished hugging Gould. "'Braddock's father and brothers were there as well. "'I'm glad I won,' Braddock said, "'because it will please the wife and kids. "'I've got the prettiest kids in the world, "'and tonight I can go home to them and say, "'Your daddy is a champ.' "'Then sportswriter Graham asked him "'what it felt like to be the champ. "'Braddock took it literally and answered, "'My left arm's sore. "'That's from warding off blows.' Bear's a pretty good fighter. He threw plenty of hard punches at me. But from the seventh round, I knew it was mine. I knew I could take him. I had taken a couple of his hard rights to the head, but they didn't hurt me any. He seemed to be getting desperate in the last few rounds. I guess he thought he could nail me. Bear claims he broke his hand in the fifth, one reporter said. This time it was Gould who spoke up. Yeah, that's too bad. Honestly, I'm sorry for him. It wasn't unusual in the fight business, and it still isn't today, that something was either broken or pulled, and that's what caused them to lose. All night long, telegrams poured in, from all the boxing greats, from all his supporters, even one from Corn Griffin, saying he was looking forward to another chance to fight Braddock. The next morning, there were a dozen dailies, all giving their take on the outcome of the fight. Dan Parker's column read, The crowd was overwhelmingly with Braddock. Here was the ideal hero, an underdog, a modest, likable fellow, a good family man with a wife and three children, a victim of the Depression whose fortune had sunk so low that he had to go on county relief, but whose pride was such that when he got back on his feet, he repaid the county every cent he had received in his lean days. A man whom fortune seemed to have passed by in the ring several years ago, but who realized the dream all of us cherish, that of getting out of the rut. No wonder almost everyone was pulling for Jimmy to win, though they might have been betting the other way. The next day, Braddock and Gould took a taxi to Jack Dempsey's restaurant, where Johnston handed Braddock a check for $31,244.13, a fortune in those days. After lunch, Braddock took the ferry back to New Jersey. The children were still with May at their grandmother's home in Gutenberg, where he stopped first, bearing an unusual present for the children a turtle. Writers were there to greet him. Joe Nichols asked him, why a turtle? Well, Braddock said, when I left the house to fight Bear, the kids asked me where I was going, and I said, to get the title. They thought I said, to get the turtle. So now I've got to pay up. Braddock slept for a few hours at Grandma's house, then headed for North Bergen, and everywhere along the route he was mauled by well-wishers. Braddock fell to the gloves of Joe Lewis in Comiskey Park nearly two years later and then retired from boxing. He had purchased a comfortable house in North Bergen where he and May lived until his death in 1974, which came in his sleep. In the New York Times, Red Smith wrote, If death came easily, it was the only thing in his life that did. May Braddock passed in 1985 at the age of 79 and was buried along with James in Mount Carmel Cemetery in Tenafly, New Jersey. Joe Gould joined the Army and was sentenced to three years of hard labor for conspiracy to accept bribes. He died from leukemia on April 21, 1950. James and May had three children, James, Jr. and Rose Marie. Braddock enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1942 and became a first lieutenant. He served in the Pacific Theater on the island of Saipan, where he trained enlisted men in hand-to-hand combat. Upon his return, he worked as a marine equipment surplus supplier and helped construct the Veronzano Bridge into the early 1960s. The popular film Cinderella Man, directed by Ronnie Howard and starring Russell Crowe and Renee Zellweger, was released in 2005. It was a second collaboration for Howard and Crowe, following 2001's A Beautiful Mind. Cinderella Man received generally positive reviews and grossed 108 million against a budget of 88 million. It received three Academy Award nominations, including Best Supporting Actor for Paul Giamatti, who played Braddock's manager, Joe Gould. Russell Crowe won a Golden Globe for Best Actor in that film. The film was shot in Toronto, with several areas redressed to appear as New York City in the 1930s. Cinderella Man is a great underdog story, and I highly recommend the movie and the book by Jeremy Schapp, both of which are outstanding. I hope you enjoyed today's presentation of Cinderella Man. If you did, please stop for a moment and send us a kind review for 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Until next week, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.